Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Well, good morning, everyone. Our guest today is Steve Lubetkin, who is the managing partner of Lubetkin Media Companies, which provides a variety of media and phonojournalistic services to their clients. Steve is also an expert on podcasting, and in fact, he's the author of a podcasting book, and we'll hear more about that for sure. And indeed, our focus today is going to be on podcasting. So hi, Steve. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Really appreciate it. Steve, can you tell our audience just a little bit about your background, about Lubetkin Media Industries, including when you started that enterprise? Sure. I uh, started my professional career as a journalist, um, and going back even before that, um, when I was a teenager, my dad worked at Fort Monmouth in central New Jersey, which was the home of the Army Signal Corps training facility for all kinds of communications arts for the military, not only of our country, but around the world. They trained soldiers and, and officers from many different countries. But they had all kinds of communications uh, training, including for Armed Forces Radio Network. They trained uh, soldiers and sailors and so forth to uh, be radio announcers and TV uh, production personnel and, and announcers. And um, one afternoon when I was a teenager, my dad got me into the uh, studio where they trained the radio people and I learned how to work the control board and uh, announce and play commercials and queue up records. Wow. And I went home that afternoon bitten by the radio bug permanently and <laughs> immediately set up a pretend studio in my parents' basement and then made pretend radio shows with a uh, turntable, a microphone, and a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. I because love this it. Was back in the, the dark ages of technology when we recorded sound on magnetic recording tape. I um, remember it well, Steve. I remember it well. Well, we are of, a, we are of an age then. Um, and yeah. so I uh, would make these pretend radio shows and play them back uh, for my own enjoyment. There was really no way to distribute them back then. But I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And when I got to Monmouth College in West Long Branch, New Jersey, I, uh, the first stop I made on campus was the college radio station where mm -hmm. I was lucky enough they had just started. The uh, station had been a closed circuit station on campus. and They had just gotten their FM license and were starting to broadcast on the FM band. And they said, well, you can have a radio show if you can pass the FCC license exam. So I immediately got the materials and studied for that and passed the license exam and got a radio show. Wow. Um, that led to a, a connection with another one of the staffers there who got me a job at a local commercial station doing production behind the scenes. And that led to becoming a newscaster and a broadcast engineer. Um, I really loved doing it, but there wasn't a lot of compensation in it. And even today, uh, people who work in radio uh, have a tough time making ends meet. For and sure. so, you know, I ended up having to leave broadcasting and uh, journalism. I did some uh, time in print journalism as well and uh, worked for about 30 years in corporate public relations positions um, okay. in several different industries. I finished my career in the financial services industry. And um, after surviving two of the largest bank mergers in the early part of the 2000s, uh, I found myself on the outside looking in and it was time to write a new chapter. So my initial expectation was that I would continue to provide public relations services to corporate clients um, as, a, sure. as a counselor, as a consultant. But there's a lot of competition there, especially from very large PR agencies that have a global footprint and can put boots on the ground in Tokyo on a moment's notice. I wasn't in that kind of a position, so it's very hard to be competitive. Yes. Um, as luck would have it, my wife happened to hear a very early feature on national public radio about podcasting, uh, this new thing that was uh, one of the many different social media tools, which at the time we called new media um, in the early 2005, 2004, 2005 timeframe. 
Um, and, and I listened to this. She said, you know, with your radio background, this is what you should be doing. And I listened to it and said, my God, this would be a perfect channel for companies to use to produce their own radio shows, you know, talk shows, interview shows, storytelling shows, but it has to sound professional. Yes. And what I was hearing in the early part of uh, 2004, 2005 was very amateurish shows that reminded me of how I sounded when I did my first college radio show. Awkward, <laughs> uh, not knowing what to talk about and what to say. Too much reference to the equipment in the studio. This is my microphone. I'm having a wonderful time pushing these buttons. Nobody cares about that. Uh, <laughs> but what people, and particularly corporate executives, right? Because what they want is to change or, or to move the needle on their audience's behavior. So if it doesn't move the needle in terms of sales or uh, customer appreciation for a company's expertise, then it isn't worth doing. And if it doesn't sound professional, then they're not going to buy it. And so I knew I needed to bring my radio skills up to the 21st century, learning how to record and edit and produce digitally. So I had to first learn how to do that and then acquire the gear to do that. Yes. And that meant, you know, getting, getting the right microphones, getting the mixing boards, uh, all of the things upgraded from, you know, where my technology skills were from way back when. And so I did that. And uh, fairly early on in uh, 2005, we started getting clients who wanted to produce podcasts. And we started producing podcasts for corporate, trade association, nonprofit clients. Um, and within a couple of years, people started asking for video because video was becoming uh -huh. much more popular. And we then, you know, geared up for video and started producing video for a number of clients. And it, it, the pendulum swings back and forth. Sometimes we're doing more video, sometimes we're doing more audio, but uh, we have a nice mix of those things. And along the way, we picked up a few clients in the news business, uh, which we produce audio and video programs for. And so, you know, we have that focus as well as the corporate focus, and it gives us a nice mix of uh, different uh, disciplines to produce content in. Yes. That's, that's an excellent start to the things I want to ask you about, Steve. A couple of things there. One is, this is a great example of somebody who, in midstream, kind of, decides that uh, I've got to move into a different direction and then invest the money, the time, the energy into getting the skills. And so many people need to do that now particularly, but even in the past. People let go or there, something happens with their job. And I commend you for doing that. I think it's just wonderful. The other thing is you, you're saying we, and I just wanted to ask you, when you started, which I'm guessing was like 2005, six around that time, were you pretty much Steve Lubetkin all alone or did you have somebody that was working with you? Well, you know, it's interesting, Jeff, when we first started, of course, it was primarily me. And over the years, we've found ourselves in situations where we have needed additional help. Yes. And that actually led to the writing of my book with Donna Papacosta, which we can talk about. We will definitely um, talk about that. That is the, the ability to find people thinking about podcasting and video podcasting the way I think about it, which is as a business service rather than as a way to become a celebrity. Yes. Um, for me, it was serving the clients by being able to produce what they needed produced when they needed to be produced. And from time to time, it doesn't happen a lot, but from time to time we found ourselves double booked and on one occasion even triple booked. Wow. And I needed to uh, tap other resources. And we've been able to do that by reaching out to some of the services and some of the other professionals who are out there. And from okay. time to time, I've had uh, a young intern working with me who uh, helped leverage my abilities with his abilities. Uh, you know, you can never learn enough about technology and the tools for technology. Uh, but if you really want to learn and get up to speed fast, get a high school student to work with you. It's, yes. it's really true. They're digital natives in the sense that they grew up with the technology. Now, I have to say, I don't consider myself ignorant of technology, even as a baby boomer. I was a very early adopter of all kinds of technologies. Um, in 1977, when I was writing for the Asbury Park Press as a music writer, as a freelancer, they sent me to cover a legendary concert. The Grateful Dead made an appearance at Englishtown Raceway in wow. central New Jersey in September yeah. of 1977. And the, the, the press was one of the very early adopters of computer newsroom technology. They had computerized the newsroom in about 1975. 
with uh, dumb terminals, but still the reporters were filing their stories on computer terminals. Amazing. And they had portable, luggable terminals that they used the outlying bureaus. And when they sent me and another reporter to cover the Grateful Dead, they sent us with a luggable terminal. Wow. And as far as wow. I can tell, it's the first time a rock concert was ever covered with a portable computer of any kind, <laughs> 1977. That is and it was amazing. a challenge for us to, to do that, but yeah. we managed to file stories from the concert uh, that appeared in the next day's newspaper. So That's uh, amazing. Neat. And, that, and the point being, yeah. you know, you don't have to be a high school student to be conversant in technology. You can learn, you know, over the years and, and you grow and you, you accumulate more skills as you, as you get older. I couldn't agree more. And this reminds me of oftentimes, I can't say always, Steve, but if something negative happens, there could also be a positive to come out of it. And COVID-19 is a terrible thing. However, it is causing some people who may be technology resistant to have to use something like Zoom, and that may just give them a little bit more comfort and confidence to go a little deeper in. And that's, again, trying to look at the positive side of a pretty awful situation. The other thing I wanted to mention to you that you reminded me of is years ago, I, I wrote a book. And I interviewed a guy, actually, he was a man I knew. I didn't interview him for the book, but I had met him in my business. And his name was Tony Mazur. He has passed. But Tony once said to me, and I, he didn't invent this expression, but I'd never heard it before. He said, by yourself, you're limited. With others, you're limitless. And that, and that always stuck with me. You can only do so much by yourself, but there are times when you, you need to find other people who might be able to help you to move something along. And you have had to do that at times, clearly, when you've been fortunate enough to have double bookings or triple book bookings or, or whatever. Let's move along to the podcast thing, because that's really why we have you here. We could talk about a lot of things. You have tremendous expertise in communications. But I'd like you to tell us a little bit, Steve, about your own podcast, which is Lubetkin on Communications. And as I told you in a, in a prior email, you have a great voice. I'm getting out of the business because you have a great voice. <laughs> so I'd, I'd like to know when, when and why you got into podcasting. You know, when I first started podcasting um, for clients, you have to have something to show people hmm. uh, to demonstrate your capability. So um, I launched the podcast originally, um, and I started an early blog on Blogspot, the, the one that most people use, the Google blogging site, which still is in existence. And then I switched over when my uh, internet hosting company started offering blogging and I changed the name because I started a different blog and I called it Lubetkin's Other Blog. <laughs> and nobody ever asked me why it was called that. So I guess it was kind of, you know, like one of those college radio references that nobody cared about. But um, I, I then changed it to make it sound a little bit more, I think, professional um, and, and to kind of leverage my background in public relations and communications. And the, the focus of the Lubetkin on Communications podcast is really on talking to people who are leading lights in communications, whether it's public relations or corporate communications or journalism, um, and then, you know, being able to disseminate that. And part of it has been going out and recording panel discussions with, you know, usually the trade associations in the communications industry, whether it's the Public Relations Society of America or the International Association of Business Communicators, IABC, sure. um, they from time to time hold panels. Back in the days when we met publicly and in person, they would right. hold panel discussions on different aspects of communications. The most popular ones tend to be Meet the Media, where they have a panel of journalists talking about what PR professionals need to know about how to effectively pitch stories to those journalists. Um, and I thought, you know, those things take a lot of work to put together and they're very often lost once they're over. They're, they're not captured. And so why not capture them as a podcast and then just present the panel as a, uh, as a tool? So a number of the episodes are panel discussions like that. Some of them uh, are even panels on which I've been asked to appear. So, uh, wow. so I get to not only host the podcast, but also appear in the panel. Yes. But a lot of them are, are interviews with people that I find interesting in the communications field. So most recently, one of our interesting interviews was a fellow named Charlie Craddeville. Charlie is a community activist and journalist in New Brunswick, New Jersey, up in Middlesex County. 
Uh, he started a, uh, an online journalism site called New Brunswick Today, and he's broken a number of stories about waste and greed and fraud and inefficiency in municipal government, uh, including up to the point where someone gave him a water meter from the municipal water authority that um, had been taken from a business and appeared to have been tampered with so that it would not register any water consumption. He was writing was had to do with, okay. uh, you know, uh, that whether some businesses were getting special treatment from the municipal water utility. And it, it led to the local police department actually obtaining a court order to seize the water meter from him at the newspaper, at the news organization's offices, which he live streamed on Facebook <laughs> so that everybody could watch him having the conversation with the police yeah. officers as they came to serve a warrant on a newspaper you know, questionable in terms of its First Amendment validity to, yeah. to do something like that. Yeah. The court erred, I think, and the police erred, I think, yes. but, uh, you know, made for very dramatic live television, too. Um, he was also more, more recently, um, he got some national attention for being thrown out of a public speech by April Ryan, the White House correspondent for uh, Urban Radio Network. Um, where he had been invited by the PR people who organized the event. And he had a camera set up to tape her speech. And right before her speech, they picked his camera up bodily and they picked him up bodily and threw him out. And the camera was still running and he captured it all. And there were other cameras running that captured it. And he got uh, a lot of attention for how poorly he was being treated at a journalist's speech as a journalist. He was there yes. covering this. So, uh, so that was an interesting interview. And uh, uh, most recently, I, I did a uh, TV interview, because we now have some nice remote TV interview capabilities, with um, Jim Steele, who was a part one of a two-part team with Don Barlett. They were uh, Philadelphia Inquirer reporters in 1990 when they wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book, started as a newspaper series called um, America, What Went Wrong? Yes. The book has been updated for today's world. Uh, America, What Went Wrong? The Crisis Deepened was just released and oh. uh, had a nice chat with Jim Steele about how things have gotten worse since they wrote the book in 1990. And it's a lot of it's about the, the structural changes in government and the way laws are made and the way influence is moved around the country uh, that have made it almost impossible for individuals to get a fair shake. And it's, it's really quite a devastating indictment of how things have changed. So he's a pretty interesting uh, guy to talk to. Uh, so I, so I kind of like to do those kinds of interviews. Well, it sounds like a great podcast. How often does Lubetkin on uh, communications run? I mean, is it like a once a week thing? Is it a, as often as you yeah, feel like, like running it? <laughs> how often like do you do it? it was, I'd like to say it was on a regular basis. It, it tends to be every couple of months or so, depending on uh, the run of other things. You know, um, it's not easy to book guests and produce and edit podcasts for yourself while you're trying to meet the needs for clients. And in particular, over the past four months, uh, the client needs have increased. The, the need for remote production has increased. Sure. The number of clients looking for uh, remote production of virtual video events has increased rather dramatically. We're doing more video live each week than I had ever done before. Um, I, we went for several years without doing very many live streamed productions because of the complexity. But now the uh, technology's improved, our capabilities have improved, and I can do it literally without leaving the studio. That's terrific. And we're going to make sure at the end that we let people know how to access all this great stuff, including the podcast that you're producing. Again, we're back to, I guess it was the Chinese, same word, crisis opportunity. I see too, there's a greater interest in remote voiceover work now. You know, you oh, can't sure. go into a studio. So it's the same kind of a thing. One of the things that is obvious about uh, certainly even the beginnings of your career, Steve, is that you have been at the start of some kind of trend, whether it was when you got to Monmouth and they're starting a station, okay? And then the Grateful Dead concert, and there you are with your computer, right? And then in, in, in way before most people, you were getting involved with podcasting and blogging and that sort of thing. Looking Forward is all about trends trends and how they may affect us 
and the opportunities they could possibly create for us. So in that spirit, I wanted to ask you about podcasting. How has the industry grown, which I'm sure it's grown over the past 10 or so years? What changes, Steve, have you seen in podcasting, in the business of podcasting over the last 10 or so years? Can you speak to that, please? I think one of the biggest things we've seen is the wider acceptance of podcasts as a a form of mass communication. And unfortunately, what that means for a lot of people is the arrival of major media companies with a lot of money to spend and professional broadcast studios uh, who are in a lot of ways, sucking the oxygen out of the room for smaller podcast producers. When people started doing this, it was very much like a hobby for many people, but it was a hobby where they had this this dream of becoming popular, building an audience because of what they did, their talents, their expertise, whatever, and becoming therefore successful and successful in a financial sense, successful in a celebrity sense and so forth. It's a lot harder for people to do that now. The, there are satire websites who often you know, joke about the fact that there are you know, 7 billion people in the world and there are 8 billion podcasts. Um, <laughs> okay. you know, it's, and, it, and, and to a certain extent, there's some truth to that because yeah. um, you, you meet people now in networking situations and they no longer talk about the book they've just written. They talk about the podcast that they're producing. Yeah. Um, everyone has a podcast. Uh, and now we have, you know, the first lady, former first lady has a podcast. But again, what we're talking about is different from what I do and from what professional podcast producers do for clients. And that is, we're talking about radio and TV shows that are simply being distributed in a different way. What Michelle Obama is doing, with all due respect, I think she's wonderful. It's a great thing to do. It's a radio show and it's being distributed as a podcast. And a lot of the things that are being produced and being sold as podcasts are being produced by major media companies in the same studios where they produce cable news shows and documentaries and all the other stuff. So they're working with the same professional broadcast equipment. I think the challenge for most podcasters at my scale is to get enough equipment, get good enough at editing and producing to make it sound professional, and then get it in the hands of your clients to help them use it in their marketing and communications activities in a way that helps put them in the best possible light. It's really not about building a huge audience. Many of our clients, the universe that's interested in their products is very small because they're businesses that sell to other businesses with very unique, distinct business-to-business products. Well, when you, when, when you talk about competition, I would like you to delve into that just a little bit further, Steve. So there are the individuals whose aspirations at the very beginning when this all started and even to this day are, were to have their own podcast. It was a hobby of sorts, but also they hope maybe would generate into a bigger business or lead to business and other things they were doing. And then there are the people like you, you have your own podcast, but you also produce podcasts for companies to help their businesses. Is the competition that you're speaking of in both areas, you're having more competition against other companies that are doing what you are doing and they're big behemoth companies, or is it for the people who are starting or have their own already existing podcasts doing it for themselves to a larger audience? Where's this competition? Both places or just one of those areas? I think it's a mix of both. I think, you know, in the corporate podcast marketplace, there are companies that perhaps used to produce radio commercials They have existing sound studios. They have existing equipment. They need another way to leverage it. And so there's those folks are often going after the same kinds of clients that I would go after. But at the broadcast company level, they are looking for the mass audience again. And this is one of the things that uh, Donna Papacosta and I discovered going through our normal day-to-day as podcast producers that we found that were not things that were not working as a model for a business model for podcasting. And so the first business model for podcasting that doesn't really work that well is I'm going to create a podcast and be, be very talented and very clever and build an audience and then sell advertising. 
That works at the Michelle Obama level because it's being produced by a large production company that can sell it to a large radio network like iHeartRadio or Spotify or whatever, where there's a mass audience and there's scale. The problem with advertising on podcasts is that the people buying advertising are the same people who used to buy ads on radio, radio networks and TV networks. And they use a business model based on the thousands of people who listen. And most podcasts don't get thousands of listeners. True. And so it's very hard for those people to buy advertising on a podcast that maybe has 2,000 listeners an episode, which is pretty strong for most podcasts. Most podcasts don't get over two or 300 listeners. Yes. Um, but it's too small. It's just yeah. too small. And so the advertising model falls apart at that level. The other model uh, that doesn't work at almost at all is the subscription model. And so a podcaster starts out and their friends say, hey, you're really funny. You should do a podcast with your jokes. And then after you build an audience, start charging people to subscribe to it. And they yeah. say, great idea. They do the podcast. And as soon as they put it behind a paywall, we found this several times when we tried to ask for a couple of dollars for a podcast the listenership drops dramatically. And when I say dramatically, it literally has gone from several thousand to zero. Wow. As soon as we ask people for money. And that's an unfortunate uh, after effect of the early internet years when we gave everything away for free. Content wants to be free. People said, you have to give it away. And this is what killed the newspaper industry to a large yes. extent. And, and once you've taught people to expect content to be for free, you can't go back to that well very effectively. Some people have done it and it does work with, but again, it works at very large scale. It works for the New York Times. It works for the Wall Street Journal. It's less likely to work for Steve Lubetkin. That's what we found. And the, the, the model that worked for us on a consistent basis is providing our services to clients willing to pay us for our expertise in helping them record, edit, produce, and deliver an effective sounding podcast. And, and that's where we make our money is the production services side of things. Now, that's where we ran into the problem we talked about earlier, the double booking and the triple booking. On a couple of occasions, I tried to find another podcaster in my universe of podcasters I had met who could cover for me at one of these other events. While I was recording one, they could record the other. And I found out very quickly that most people doing this were not thinking about it as a business they needed to be prepared to take on the road. They were thinking about it as I go into my podcast booth, I turn on my computer, I push record, and I talk. Yes. And that's all they had was a microphone plugged into the computer. And they didn't have you know, wireless mics, they didn't have mixers, they didn't have portable gear they could take with them. Yeah. And that's where Donna and I said, you know, maybe we could educate people that there's another way to make money from podcasting. And that's why we wrote The Business of Podcasting. So The Business of Podcasting, just briefly for now, the audience can learn more about it later, but the focus of The Business of Podcasting is really how you can make money through podcasting. Is that this sort of a- That's exactly right. That's it. It's not about how you can start your own podcast in your uh, closet. It's about how you can make money a living in podcasting. Yeah, the interesting thing was um, very early on in, in our journey on the podcasting career, I was uh, speaking at a conference with one of my clients about how this client was using podcasting to promote its executives' thought leadership and expertise. We would interview the executives about some aspect of the business, and they would distribute the podcast along with a white paper and some other materials so that people would get a real sense of what the company knew about its expertise. And during the course of our presentation, we were explaining the workflow during which the scripts were written for the podcast, and then the scripts were reviewed with company lawyers. Now, in heavily regulated industries, generally in most industries, but certainly in heavily regulated ones like financial services or insurance or healthcare, the lawyers are always involved in anything that's going to be delivered external to the company. But in the audience were people who were incredulous. You're, you're having a podcast script reviewed by lawyers? How can you do such a thing? And I realized there was a almost a Wild West mindset in podcasting. There was not a business mindset going on. In a business world, you don't do anything without checking with the lawyers. And we came up with a way to do it that made the podcast production way more efficient because if you record the podcast and don't let the lawyers listen to the podcast, they might rip the whole thing apart. And right. re-recording after you've recorded 
is a lot harder than getting approval of the script ahead of time. And so getting people to change their minds and change the way they think about podcasting as a business tool was part of why we wrote the book. Wow. This is all fascinating to me because I hadn't thought about it so much in this way. Let's move on for now. Again, we could spend a lot of time on that, but let's move on for now. Let's talk about right now, COVID-19. You talked a little bit about this before. What's going on? How is it affecting people who are starting their podcast out of their garage? Not on a day like today when it's pouring, but people starting podcasting out of their garage or people like you who are producing for companies. How is this affecting things? Well, on a very basic level in the podcasting world, I think the big thing that's happening is podcasters are coming up to speed very quickly because they have to on how to do good quality remote interviews. Now, Zoom has been around for several years. We actually started using Zoom about three years ago. Okay. Um, and it's been a godsend for a lot of the things that we've had to do. And by being up to speed on it early, we were able to help a number of clients with, with Zoom needs fairly quickly. And uh, that's been good for business, I'm sad to say, and I'm happy to say at the same yeah. time. It's a terrible time for everybody, but we've been able to help clients do things like Zoom meetings for municipal zoning and planning boards. And we've been conducting a number of those for clients. And we've done it in a way that they don't have to worry about potential for people intruding on the meeting and disrupting the meeting, the Zoom bombing that you hear about. Yes. We, we understand the security features. We understand how to keep people from interrupting if they're not people who are authorized to be there, that sort of thing. On another level, it's presented some other opportunities. There's a whole subset of what you might call the podcasting radio production world, where podcast producers and radio producers would send recording engineers out to remote locations to record one side of an interview with a guest. And that tape would be, or digital recording would be sent back to the studio to be synchronized in post-production with the host in the studio. The, the actual interview gets conducted over the phone or over Skype or over Zoom, but they use the two pieces to make it sound like the, the guest and the host are sitting in the same studio. Now that's yeah. called a tape sync. Back when I was in radio, we called them double enders. And double. they literally would send somebody out with a tape recorder and a microphone to stick a mic in your face, record it, and then mail the tape back to the studio. NPR does these a lot. They don't have to mail tapes anymore. They're emailing audio files but it became unsafe for people to go out and stick a microphone in someone's face. And that business almost completely went away, except for uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to convince a couple of clients that we could help them do it with remote capabilities. And we were able to keep a a number of projects going for people, interviewing people even as uh, prominent as um, uh, Jim Lovell, the uh, commander of Apollo 13. We were involved in recording an interview with him on the anniversary of the Apollo 13 flight. So it was really kind of interesting to be involved and hear his perspective on what went on on that flight. Yes. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it is a couple of our clients who relied for a significant chunk of their revenue on producing live events that people came to. Not so much for the ticket revenue, but they produce the events, sponsors underwrite the events, and that revenue helps generate you know, it helps keep the the business going. They weren't able to do those live events. And we were able to come up with a video solution to allow them to do live streamed events with guests, panelists from, from remote locations and mix it as if we were mixing and producing a cable news show with, you know, multiple talking heads on the wall behind Jake Tapper. So it's kind of cool to be able to do that and do that from my studio and see how the business has grown and morphed and changed. And so we were able to just adapt. So it's been interesting. It's been a lot busier. And of course, a lot of the changes, a lot of the things that are going on, um, we're members of a local synagogue here and uh, I'm helping the synagogue produce the uh, religious services for the entire high holy days season coming up in the fall. There will not be a live uh, event for people to attend. It'll be a pre-recorded service uh, that we're putting together right now by taping the segments and we'll be putting it together as a continuous service for people to watch. Now, let me ask you to talk about, again, we're still with COVID-19, Steve. What about the individuals who 
are involved in podcasting, not, not the businesses like yours, are more people starting podcasts or people not getting involved or dropping out of them because people aren't subscribing, that these people find there's no way to make a living and they need to make a living. What's happening to those individuals who produce self-produced podcasts and that sort of thing? What, what's, what's happening with that? As near as I can tell, people are continuing to produce podcasts. Certainly, you know, people have some additional increment of time on their hands more than they had previously because they are home. They don't have a long commute, so there's extra time and there's a lot more consumption. People are looking for interesting things to consume in terms of media content. You know, there's a lot of binging on Uh, streaming services and cable TV, but people are getting tired of that and looking for other things. We're seeing an increase in attendance at Zoom events over and above what you might expect in a normal environment. My wife and I are uh, attending a film festival that um, in previous years has been in a theater. You buy the tickets for the movies, you go to the theater, you see everybody you know from the community, and you watch the movie and maybe talk with the director in the theater. They're now doing those as a streaming uh, approach, they're giving you access to the movies online, you watch the movie, and then a couple of days later, there's a Zoom conference conversation with someone connected to the movie. So there's all sorts of different ways that people are using it. For the individual podcasters, I think some of them are finding ways to record with co-hosts remotely that they never used before, so they're learning new skills. Um, some of them are recording by themselves, they're adapting, they're changing, they're finding new things to talk about. So, you know, as they say, necessity is the mother of invention and everyone is learning new skills. Um, We're learning how resilience hasn't been a part of our infrastructure for a long, long time. People working at home are discovering, you know, like I discovered 15 years ago when I first started my business and started working at home, I would be preparing something for a client and say, I don't have a three-hole punch. And I'd be off to Staples to buy a three-hole punch, something as simple as that. Early on, early on, it was, you know, I need a fax machine. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody needs a fax machine today. Right. But office equipment, you know, little routine things that you don't, that you take for granted in the office that you don't necessarily have at home. So people are learning that they really needed to have more prepared and stored and ready to do this. And, you know, I say to people, I've been preparing for this for 15 years. I had paper clips, I had rulers, I had paper cutters and all, all that stuff is already there. So yeah. um, basically just turn on the lights and come to work in the morning. And I'm blessed that um, I'm able to do that. Yes, you are. You're blessed, but you have the necessary skills that are required for this kind of environment. And you did make a good point there, Steve, which is whether it's in this environment or in our lives in general, adaptability, flexibility, resourcefulness, these are all critical things, critical things. We ask you to put your forecasting hat on. Looking forward is looking forward in an upbeat way, but it's also looking forward down the road. Nobody knows a year ago you and I'd be talking the word COVID-19 would have never entered into our discussion. So with that caveat, as you look forward over the next several years, I would certainly hope after COVID-19 is behind us, what are you seeing? What do you think might happen in the world of podcasting? Not only on the business side, but we've got a lot of individuals who aren't going to be doing what you're doing. So what are you seeing over the next uh, several years that could happen? I think that as it always has, video is going to continue to grow. I think more and more people are going to want to put their feet in that water. Um, the tools are becoming a lot more affordable to do video production. Um, and to do live stream videos. More people are doing Facebook live videos or YouTube live videos and they're enjoying it and their audiences enjoy it. And I think we'll see more of that. I think we'll also see a national reckoning around delivering and distributing higher speed broadband to people. I was uh, shocked to learn that the official US definition of broadband internet is about 100 megabits per second. And that is relatively slow compared to what broadband is in the rest of the world. And it's not widely distributed either. We're probably around where the U.S. was in 1920 or 25 when it it came to telephone penetration uh, in terms of internet penetration. And, you know, we're at a point where access to high-speed internet ought to be 
considered a utility. It ought to be something that there is, you know, 100% coverage. And particularly in uh, communities that are economically challenged, uh, where there have been racial inequities, there needs to be some kind of an infrastructure put in place. And I think we'll, we're, we're going to see more of a conversation about that. Uh, in the very near future as uh, school districts wrestle with the idea that they probably won't be able to reopen as quickly as they thought they would. And they're going to have to provide education to people who may or may not have access to internet and computers. And they're going to have to figure out how to deliver that. So we're going to see more of that coming down. We're going to see higher speeds. We're going to see new technologies. And we're going to see new and interesting ways of people disseminating content. I think news reporting is going to change rather dramatically. One thing that I think the news networks have rediscovered is that the, the, uh, the video doesn't necessarily have to be shot with a $40,000 camera. And I have friends in the business who are carrying $40,000 cameras and, wow. you know, make a good living doing that. And I, I love them. But I think, you know, if I can produce stuff with the gear that I produce stuff with, and if they can do interviews on CNN with people who are on Zoom or webcams of some sort, they're going to be less and less crews going out in the field, talking in terms of multimedia journalists, which used to be done only at the smallest TV stations in the country, where the reporter carried his own camera or her own camera. Um, you're going to see more of that at the network level. And cameras will get smaller and lighter, and the ability to distribute the uh, reporting will be at the, you know, at the point of recording. The, the yeah. camera will record it. They'll do a light edit in the camera and, and it'll be uploaded and it'll be on the satellite or, or on the internet uh, before they leave the scene. You know, I mean, they do that now, but the amount of equipment that's being used is, is much larger than, than it probably will be in the future. So, so you know, I think smaller, lighter, faster. And more virtual. Sounds like more virtual is what you're talking about. I think right? so. And I think that, you know, even, even when we get to a point where we, we broadly agree that it's safe to go back to face-to-face -to -face functions and events, people are still going to want that virtual option. And this was one of the reasons why I thought podcasting would always be successful is, you know, some of the events I was recording, these panel discussions, they would draw a business panel with leaders in different sectors of industry, would draw three or 400 people to a Chamber of Commerce event. But there were probably twice as many people who wished they could have been there. But that morning before they left the office to go to the event, the boss said, hey, I need you to stay here and do this contract. <laughs> and they couldn't go. Couldn't and go. even though they knew they were missing the networking component of that event, rubbing elbows, exchanging business cards, there was content being delivered in the panel. Yes. And if they could at least see what the panel talked about, that would be a plus. And we're seeing a lot more of that, I think. And you will see more of that that people expect you can't just go back to having, you know, your zoning board meeting on Tuesday night at eight o'clock at the borough hall. You have to have a, a, a Zoom that people can look at it from home. To your point there, I take classes, lifelong learning classes. We were all Zoom last month and we're going to be all Zoom for the fall. It's the first time that we're going all Zoom for the fall. And I sent a notice out to friends of mine who normally wouldn't be able to go to where I go at the University of Delaware but they may have access if they can get in and get registered ahead of somebody else because the space is limited. And one person wrote to me and, they, and the person said, you know, I don't particularly care for Zoom type classes. I like to go in person. Well, you know, I do too, but it, this is the world we live in. And I think it does open up the tent a little bit wider for more people to participate. And even though you don't get the networking benefit as much, there's no question, you do get, as you pointed out, the content. So absolutely correct. The accessibility is greater. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, almost 30 years ago when I decided I needed to check off the MBA box yeah. on my experience list, <laughs> um, I was commuting to New York City two hours each way on the bus. And it wasn't practical for me to find school where I would have to sit in a classroom to take the classes. And I looked for some way to do it remotely. And the only option at the time was a place called the University of Phoenix. And they had an online MBA. They accepted transfer credits. Most of the credits I had earned in a sit in the classroom program at Rutgers University, were, they accepted. And I ended up doing my MBA on a laptop computer on the bus back and forth to New York at a time when 
there were almost no schools in the country that had embraced online learning. The, the few mainstream schools that had online courses would allow you to take the course, but you must come to the campus for two weeks during the summer. For what, I don't know, but you, they required that. But I did the MBA at, at uh, Phoenix in 1992, wow. another early adopter thing. Yeah. Um, and I worked harder in that program because of the participation requirement for the grade. I worked harder in that program than I worked when I sat in a classroom. Wow. You know, there's an, another great example of, you mentioned early adopters, but it's also having the ability to get onto something at an early stage. And whether it's a stock or it's a specific business opportunity that you're pursuing, it's a great thing when you can sense something and take the step. It's not just sensing it, it's taking the step. And that's a perfect segue into one last important thing I'd like you to address, Steve. You mentioned students. You were a student, I was a student. There are, there are a lot of students who are in high school. I feel bad for the kids who are in school, the kids who are in college. It's not a normal college experience that they're having right now. And then there are millions of people who are out of work, who are doing something maybe that they really have to do but don't enjoy doing. And then there are people who, in some respects, like, like me, are fortunate enough to get involved in second careers. So what I'd like you to talk about is for those individuals, and there are different kinds, so there may be different answers to this, what opportunities do you see for those individuals in the world of podcasting over the next you know, five plus years, COVID and beyond COVID? Where, where do you see opportunities? So you've been a great one at getting involved in these trends. Where do you see opportunities? Well, I think there's certainly opportunities in uh, producing, engineering, recording, editing uh, podcasts. One of the areas that I don't think gets enough attention, and I, I, I need to kick up my skill set a notch, is, is in what they call sound design. Some podcasts that are storytelling narratives, dramatically interpreted documentary style podcasts, require an enormous amount of sound design, meaning sound effects between segments music beds between segments, uh, how those things get woven together to tell an effective audio story in a way that's pleasing to the ear, as well as content rich. And I think, you know, people who have that kind of expertise and talent are going to be in demand because as we move forward, you know, more and more companies are starting to realize that, as, as I like to say, being the media is something they have to do. Uh, and so being the media may mean for some companies, some have tried it and given up on it, some have tried it and haven't continued to invest in it, but being a media company, producing media as if they were a news media organization is, is going to be a positive thing for them. And they're going to staff that up. Up to now, they've been reluctant to make that commitment because it's it's not central to their business. And as Frankly, revenues fall when you have a disastrous economy. Um, the things that get cut tend to be the, the nice to things, even yes. though those of us who do communications and marketing uh, are always trying to convince them that that's the last thing you should cut. It tends to be the first thing that you cut. Yes. So you see great opportunities in different jobs and businesses that people might pursue that relate to these somewhat back office media functions? I think so. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not all about it's not all about being on mic. Yeah. You know, most, even in the movie industry, the good jobs are not being actors and actresses. The good jobs are being, you know, camera operators and directors of photography and sound engineers and gaffers and lighting people. Those are where the consistent jobs are where, you know, you can you can make a career and make money and be in the industry. Um, so, you know, even even editing sound for uh, video games is going to be huge. Wow. It already is huge. Yeah. Uh, editing video, graphic design, computer yeah. graphics, all those things. Um, wow. It's going to be an exciting time. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Certainly in this in this particular industry, I think a lot of potential there. Let's close things out very importantly by having your telling people how they could find out more about you more about Lubetkin Media Companies, about your podcast, the book, which is called The Business of Podcasting? That's right. The Business of Podcasting, yes. how to take your podcasting passion from the personal to the professional. Okay, that's a great title. So how do they find out more about you and all this other stuff, Steve? 
Okay, so for starters, they can visit our website, which is beingthemedia.com. Beingthemedia.com. Uh, and if you want to uh, write to me, you can use steve at beingthemedia.com. That'll work. For the book, the book's website is thebusinessofpodcasting.com. You'll see information about the book, about me and Donna, some podcast interviews that we've done. There are also some checklists and uh, downloads there, excerpts from the book, like uh, what a podcaster should keep in a go bag in the car. So if you need to go podcast remotely on a moment's notice, you have equipment ready to go with a checklist of what to keep in that bag. And then follow me on Twitter as Podcast Steve. I think those are the easiest ways to get us. If you want to look at our news content, we have a separate news division we set up a couple of years ago called statebroadcastnews.com. And mm. that's the site where we post most of our content that is either newsworthy or news stories or produced for news organizations. Okay. And also just to clarify the book, if somebody is more interested in just hosting a podcast, they're not looking to grow a big business in it. Is there information for them in that book as well? There's a little bit of information about equipment that we found useful and tools that we found useful, but our focus is not teaching people how to be podcasters. Our okay. focus is on telling people who are podcasters, here's a way you might consider making money from podcasting, but it's not what you think. You may think you're going to make it from being rich and famous or being famous and then being rich, uh, but a more realistic approach uh, to how to run a podcasting business. So to that extent, somebody, when we, when we look back on these opportunities, it could be a great book for somebody who's looking at a career or a, a career change and seeing how they might get involved in the podcast business, as opposed yes, to it being kind absolutely. of a hobby and all that sort of thing. Yeah, there, there are literally hundreds of books that uh, teach you how to plug in microphones and use mixers and record a phone call over Skype. That's, that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to say, here's a business model. If you, if you know how to produce podcasts, here are the things that you will need to do if you're going to run a podcast consultancy. Yes. Um, and that means how do you figure out what you're going to charge people, legal agreements, contracts, estimates, when do you invoice people for work? You know, the kinds of things that people need to know to run a business, but looking at it through the lens of podcast consultancy rather than I'm a podcaster, I'm going to be famous. Yes. Steve, this has been very enlightening. Thank you so much for all this information. You're a perfect example, again, of somebody who's seen trends early on, gotten on the bandwagon when it wasn't really uh, filled with other people <laughs> and has made a great career out of it. We really appreciate your being on Looking Forward. Thanks very much, Jeff. It's been great to be here. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.